Hey everyone, this is Jazz's editor Brian Zimmerman here to introduce a very special episode of Jazz's Not What You Think. It features author and speaker Greg Sattel, who's an expert on innovation, design, and networking. He talks to Jazz's publisher Michael Fagan about how great innovations take shape over adaptive, flexible networks which he says operate more like jazz ensembles than like large orchestras. It's a super interesting conversation, and if you like it, please subscribe to the Jazz Is Not What You Think podcast and our Jazz Is Backstage Pass podcast on Apple Music, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you download your podcasts. And visit us online at jazzes.com. You know, we're offering a brand new digital and print subscription that comes with access to all of our podcasts, playlists, feature articles, and reviews views online, as well as a premium print magazine with award-winning photography. As a matter of fact, our latest issue celebrates our 35th anniversary with a look back at all of the iconic jazz photos we've published over the years. Head on over to jazzes.com, that's J-A-Z-Z-I-Z.com, to become a subscriber today. With that said, let's get to the show. view and, and to use Josh's vernacular connectivity changes the nature of innovation there's a couple of things um, first of all innovation is is combination uh, and there's a, a recent um, study that I included in my book that showed it analyzed over 17 million scientific papers mm-hmm. and what it found was that the, mo- the most highly cited papers, the ones that were the most important, were generally focused on a specific field of endeavor with just a little smidgen taken from somewhere else. Uh, and the, there's been a number of studies over the years that show that great innovators tend to have better networks. So it's not that they know everything, but they know who knows. So when they're working on a problem and they need that little smidgen of knowledge from some crazy place, they're much more likely to hit upon it because uh, they tend to be, funny enough, uh, with this... Steve, with the Steve Jobs ethos out there, but one of the things I noticed with the people I talked to, they were incredibly nice and sharing and generous. Mm-hmm. So those connections help you come across unlikely combinations. Uh, so that's the first thing. The, the second thing is the networked world and how digital connections, uh, digital technology has enabled us to build connections uh, that are much denser and faster and, um, and wider than we would otherwise. And it's really the density of connections that drives networks. And you can show this mathematically. There was some path-breaking work done by a guy named uh, Duncan Watts along with Steve Strogatz and then uh, in a parallel fashion, uh, Albert Barabashi, 
in the late 90s that really uh, revolutionized how we understand networks and identified something called small world networks, which are tightly clustered networks uh, made up of small groups that are, but they're loosely connected and they're able to connect from one part of the network to another in just a few small hops. So uh, mm -hmm. tight clustering, but, you know, very low degrees of separation. And when, when that happens, you get idea flowing much, much faster, much more like a jazz ensemble than a, an orchestra. Uh, well, interesting that you mentioned that, Greg, because there's a, a, there are several papers that have been written, books that have been written, that using jazz as a business model. Um, and, you know, the, the, the one thing that I, I loved about your book is that it resonated with me from, not from my publishing side or my tech side or my business side, but actually my medical side. And um, when I was in academics at the University of Florida as a, as a nuclear radiologist, um, a rheumatologist, completely different subspecialty, reached out to me and said, um, we want to write this paper on this, you know, relatively uncommon entity, but, but interesting entity called reflex sympathetic dystrophy. And I don't know anything about rheumatology. And this rheumatologist knew very little about radiology. But when we connected, when we put our heads together and wrote this paper, it wound up being one of the most cited papers for what's called RSD. And, and when I read your section of the book about that, I was saying, well, that's exactly what happened because we connected, we were from two different fields and we were able to bring something to the table that the other guy didn't have. And, you know, whether it's Einstein or Darwin or things that you cite in your book, I see that as a pattern. Yeah, in fact, sometimes it's the only way you can solve a problem. In the book, I, uh, I talk about Innocentive, which mm -hmm. is, uh, was a, a pilot project out of Eli Lilly, where they were, this is back in the late 90s, where they were trying to come up with ways where they, uh, to, to harness the power of the internet. Uh, this guy, Alf Bingham, came up with this idea of, of, uh, hey, why don't we just put some of these problems that we can't solve on the internet and see if anybody can solve them? And they did, and it worked. Mm -hmm. uh, they solved within like six months. I think they put up 25 problems to start, and within six months, a third of them were solved. And that, uh, that they launched it in 2001. Over 15 years, that percentage has, has pretty much held steady. About a third of the problems get solved. But the interesting thing is, is that the solutions never come from the domain in which they arose. So if it was a chemistry problem that uh, gets put on the platform, none of this chemists can solve it. It stumps them all. But an answer will come from some adjacent field, like a biologist or a physicist. Well, and you cite that example very well with uh, a couple times in the book with Fleming and penicillin. Um, and that it, it really was the mold, what'd you call it, the mold juice? Yeah, that, that everybody talks about how penicillin, he, he had this 
sort of eureka moment when he noticed that the this mold was eradicating bacteria in a petri dish but we didn't you know penicillin didn't become commercially available till 1945 that's almost 20 years later so there was obviously a lot more to it than than the discovery and you find that when he published his his paper almost nobody paid attention because okay. what he discovered couldn't have cured anybody it was just a mold juice you couldn't ingest it you couldn't store it you couldn't it, it was uh, pharmacologically absolutely useless it was only when it uh, a bigger team started taking it on with more specialties, with more skills, with uh, a more diverse body of knowledge, that those problems started getting solved and became the miracle cure we know today. Wow. So I wanted to ask you about, um, it sounded like in your book, you talked about your kind of first experience in the business world was you were working at an entertainment magazine in the Ukraine. And, and my first experience in the business world was working in an entertainment magazine in the U.S. Um, how did you segue from that into what you're doing now? And I realize that's a loaded question because a lot of, has happened since then. But was there something about your experience in the, in the publishing world that gave you some insight? Well, that wasn't my first working experience. That was... By that time, I was actually CEO of quite a large company, and that was one okay. of our brands. Okay. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I actually started off in Wall Street, and then I went to radio in New York in the mid-90s. I started working. And then I got an offer to go to, uh, to, go to work for a business journal in Poland. And I figured, hey, what the hell, why not? If I don't do it now, I'll never do it. I'll never right. do anything like this. So I, I thought I was going overseas for six months, and I ended up that six months ended up turning into 15 years. Wow. And uh, when I first got over to Poland, I, uh, you know, Poland was just emerging as a newly capitalist country. Mm-hmm. So I had this attitude: Well, I'm an American. I know how this whole system works, and I'll show these these guys how how to do it. And then you get over there and you say, this is how it works. And they say, what do you, why does it have to work that way? And you sort of scratch your head and you think, well, uh, I don't know. Uh, let me think about that. And sometimes there actually is a good reason to do it that way. But then other times you, you realize it's, it's just been a matter of convention. It's one of the problems in the media industry in this, in this country where, you know, if somebody's from radio or press or tv or whatever they have still even to this day very fixed ideas about how a media business is supposed to run even though the 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 media world has changed drastically oh yeah so so that was a a sort of a wake-up call and then as i i was overseas longer i lived in poland and ukraine and moscow and turkey and i did business in maybe half a dozen other countries and everywhere I went, I saw people running the same types of businesses in absolutely different ways. So eventually it kind of dawned on me that, hey, there's, there's a lot of different ways to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. You uh, you seem to be a fan of, of another book that uh, I really enjoyed, and that was Clayton Christensen's The Innovator's Dilemma. Um, and one of the things I really loved about that section of the book was that, and you didn't use the term, but I've always used it, that some companies are too good. Um, and I know Christensen points that out. And, you know, I, I, I always use the Betamax. Uh, when something's too good or a company's too good, I say, you know, they're going to get Betamaxed. Um, and and I, I, the way I understood it in your book is you said that, you know, companies make try to create better products um, than what the market actually demands. Uh, and they change the basis of competition. Can you go into that a little bit? Well, I don't think it's a matter so much of being too good. I think it's more of a matter of being being in a square peg business and then encountering a, a round hole world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when you, you know, most people are in a square peg business. You make your money by more pegs, more holes, better, faster, cheaper. Um, but when something happens to change that basis of competition, uh, and uh, in the book, Christensen, uh, one of his his main examples is the disk drives, mm-hmm. where they say, okay, we want faster disk drives. We want b- bigger, stronger, faster disk, disk, disk drives. But then every couple of years, some new technology comes out, and it turns out that they want them smaller. So the the basis of competition completely changes, and they're still trying to make faster disk drives that are the wrong size. And they ended up uh, failing. And this happened actually a couple of times in that industry. So I don't think it's a so much a matter as, hey, hey, hey you know, let's not get too good at, at anything. But understanding about what the problem that needs solving. So look at the indus- look at the retail industry today. Obviously, it's in a lot of trouble. Um, and people are saying retail's dying and everything else. But then you go look at the online retailers, and they're all building physical locations. So <laughs> what's going on, right? Mm-hmm. And if you look into it, what you what becomes clear. Is it the problem the problem that traditional retailers try to solve are trying to solve with a physical location is to drive transactions. And that's how people are compensated. That's how the metrics are set up, like sales per square foot and average transaction and so on and so forth. But that's not the problem that the consumer is really trying need solved. It with a physical location today, you can you can drive transactions anywhere. You can do it on your on your computer, on your mobile phone. You don't need a physical location to drive transactions. And then you go see what the online uh, retailers are doing in their physical stores, or like an Apple store, and they don't really care about driving transactions. That physical location is there to service, to build relationships, to upsell, to do almost everything except drive a transaction. They don't care if you walk out the door and buy something on your phone. And in fact, some of these stores, they're set up that you actually can't walk out with any product. Mm -hmm. Some of the fashion retailers, you can come in, 
you can get advice from a stylist, you can try things on, um, and, and you can order from the store, you can get same day delivery, but they don't have a stock room, they're not paying stocking costs, they're not paying extra rent, and it's a completely different business model. So that's a very good example of a square peg business hitting a round hole world. Because if you're a traditional retailer and you're still focused on driving transactions and getting people to walk out the door with product, you're focusing on the wrong problem. Mm -hmm. And you make it a, a point in your book that, you know, one of the things, first thing you have to do is uh, in order to innovate, you got to determine how well is the problem defined. And, and I really like what you said next, and that is, how well is the domain defined? And I think I think people get they trip up on that. And and with that, I'm going to add a second part to a, sort of a question. Um, explain to our audience your innovative innovation matrix and how did you come up with that? Yeah, I came up with that out of frustration, really. <laughs> Over the years, I've I've had the opportunity to run to lead a number of, of different organizations. And there was always incredible pressure to innovate. And as a, as a business owner yourself, you, you know what that's like. I mean, your decisions, your ability to innovate, um, people depend on that. You know, that's how they feed their kids. That's how they pay the rent. That's how they um, save for, for college. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's a lot of responsibility. And whenever I look to see how you innovate, uh, I couldn't, there was no clear answers. And, and a lot of the answers I did get were contradictory. So mm -hmm. you look at something like design thinking, which has been incredibly successful. Apple is a design thinking company. Ideo, the global design firm is mm -hmm. uh, just is based on design thinking. Stanford developed the D school to focus on design thinking. And then you start looking into it and, you, and it says uh, that you focus on the end user, that everything you do focuses on the, on the problem the end user wants solved. And that makes perfect sense. That, that's really how I should do things. Mm -hmm. And then you read our old friend Clayton Christensen and the innovator's dilemma and disruptive innovation. And he says that's how company, good companies go out of business. <laughs> so, right. so which is it? And then you have someone like um, in the Chaos Monkeys just create an MVP, a minimally viable product, and move forward. Yeah, well, there's that. Well, MVP is part of Lean Launchpad and Business Model Canvas and uh, Lean Startup and all this. Then you have op open innovation and then you have basic research. I mean, some people are trying to cure cancer. <laughs> so, so, you know, and I don't see how design thinking is going to help you cure cancer. Um, so... I wanted to come up with a framework that would be useful and solve that. The one, what is for me the only strategic question that really matters. What do I do? What mm -hmm. do I do? And one of the ways I've seen a lot of companies get stuck is they get locked into a particular 
in innovation strategy. They say, this is how we innovate. This is our DNA. Well, that's just picking the, the solution before you even know what the problem is. How well is the problem defined and how well is the demand defined? And that seemed to break out and organize things very well. And in using it and working with companies, it's been incredibly successful and very clarifying. So um, I, I'm very happy it worked out that way. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's, a, it's certainly a great model to follow. The, uh, one of the other things you said in the book that I, I love, because it's, it's, I think I'm going to steal your quote and use it all the time, and that every initial vision is wrong. Uh, oh, well, please steal that. Because I stole it from Steve Blank. <laughs> perfect. Well, you, could, uh, you, couldn't have stole, you couldn't have stolen it from a better guy. Yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, he always says, you know, you have to get out of the building. Um, yeah. You know, the, your idea is always wrong. Or maybe he didn't exactly say it that way. Um, but yeah, your, your idea is wrong. Your numbers are wrong. Maybe it's off by a little and maybe it's off by a lot. I mean, if you take your spouse or significant other, you know, you can try a little experiment, you know, surprise them one day, tell them that you're going to design a complete evening and that that's and, and, and not tell them what, what you have planned. It might turn out okay, but chances are whatever you plan is not going to be what they want to do that night. And it very well might end in disaster because we're, we're very bad at predicting exactly what people want, even if it's someone we live with. Now, <laughs> to, to try and predict exactly the, uh, the preferences of hundreds or thousands of people you've never met uh, without even talking to them, well, that's that's just not very realistic. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and you know, while we're talking about Steve Blank, the other thing that you 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 touched on in your book, and that is, and it's it's so simple, but I don't think people think about it. And that is, the failures that are generally seen in companies are because they run out of cash quicker they can, than they can modify their inevitable flaws. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I, I've noticed, I, I had noticed this before. I mean, that's one of the great things about Steve Blank. When you, when you read what he has to say, you're like, oh, I wish I would have read this 10 years ago. <laughs> because sure. I did, you know. um, but yeah, uh, one of the things I used to tell people when we were launching new businesses and I'd start cutting things and they say, oh, no, we have to have that. I said, listen. You want to launch with the smallest business. You want to launch with the smallest budget possible because it's not going to turn out the way you think. And you never want to get behind your budget because once, once you start missing those numbers, yeah. you're in, you're in, you know, you're in big trouble. You're not yeah. definitely going to fail, but you're probably going to fail. What's that concept? So, it's it's um, uh, default death versus default life. Yeah. Absolutely. So, um, so yeah, I mean, uh, that's what's great about what's interesting about the whole lean launchpad process or lean, lean startup movement or whatever you want to call it is while Steve was working on the one thing, um, Alex Osterwalder halfway across the world was working on another aspect of the problem. And that was the business model. Mm -hmm. And they, uh, someone introduced them. And 
they met and they they realized that they had you know both pieces to the puzzle and they sort of immediately hit it off and combined their efforts and and were all better off that they did watson and crick it's a very much yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah. so so the gap between discovery of an innovation innovative new technology and its commercialization um that can be a real stumbling block for companies that want to innovate yeah i think what you have to i i generally say a good rule of thumb to follow is 30 years. It generally takes about 30 years to go from a initial discovery to an, an actual impact. We already discussed penicillin. That was about 20 years. Electricity was about 40 years. Automobiles were about 40 years. Um, computers or personal computers were about 30 years. Um, Artificial intelligence has been about 50 years. So um, there's two ways you can look at that. The one way you could look at it is to say, well, what's the use? It'll take me 30 years. <laughs> and I don't have that kind of time, uh, which is, is one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is that the next big thing is always about 29 years old. Mm-hmm. So it big thing. Well, it's it's been around for a very, very long time. It just hasn't found the right problem yet or hasn't got quite mature enough. And when you mm-hmm. look at what's happening now with what I call the new era of innovation, where we have a number of paradigms that are really starting to die, mm-hmm. the most important of which is Moore's Law, which mm-hmm. is driven you know, over the past 20 or 30 years, innovation's been synonymous with, or almost synonymous with digital technology, mm-hmm. which is driven by Moore's law. So someone like Steve Jobs can say, I want a thousand songs in my pocket, knowing full well that's impossible, that uh, there's, no dis- there's no hard drive that has the, the technical specifications to make that possible. But at the same time, know, knowing that it's only a matter of a couple of years before one, one becomes available. And that's what's really driven the digital revolution. And it's mm-hmm. going to end in just a few years mm-hmm. because there's only so many transistors you can cram on a chip. Uh, so we have to find a different way of doing things. And those things are fairly well developed. Quantum computing is one. Uh, neuromorphic chips or another. There's some other workarounds like things called FPGAs and 3D stacking and so on and so forth. But we don't know how to use them that well yet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then we also have uh, genomics, which is a new nascent trend. Um, something called CRISPR, which is only a few years old, which is completely changing the face of it. You know, we mm-hmm. worry about teenagers hacking computer viruses today. It's n- not going to be very long when we have to worry about high school students hacking biological viruses. Oh, absolutely. And, and I'm not talking, this is not 20, 30 years. This is five or 10 at most. 
Hey everybody, this is Brian again, jumping in here real quick. Sorry to pull you away from the fascinating conversation, but I just wanted to tell you a little bit more about the podcast offerings we have at jazzes.com. In our most recent Jazzes Backstage Pass podcast, online editor Matt Micucci and I recap the 10 albums you absolutely need to know for March 2019. The list features artists like Brantford Marsalis, Snarky Puppy, and Catherine Russell, and we've even got a new tribute album to Miles Davis. You get to hear a little bit of music from each album. Subscribe to Jazz's Backstage Pass wherever you get your podcasts or check us out at jazzes.com. You can comb through our archive of interviews with musicians like Lyle Mays and Esperanza Spaulding. We've even got a conversation between Herbie Hancock and President Bill Clinton. This is stuff you just have to check out for yourself. Become a subscriber and you get access to everything. All right, that's enough for me. Let's get back to the conversation. Well, I, I'll, I'll further that by saying, you know, as a as a studier of, uh, of, of viruses, uh, I was actually a microbiology major in undergrad, and I was fascinated with virology. Right. And I've always believed, I mean, I went, I went on to become a radiologist, but um, I was always fascinated with, for lack of a better word, the ignorance that, that most people have about viruses, not realizing that they're pieces of genetic material that are floating around that can be manipulated and that they are probably, and uh, I, I, I say this with with no real backing other than a gut feeling, they are probably the cause of a lot of infirmity that we can't, we don't know. It's so-called idiopathic. We don't know what causes it. It's probably viral. That, and there's a lot of speculation that it's what, it's a major driver of evolution. Of course. But now with, with CRISPR, we have the ability to, um, and, for your listeners, uh, CRISPR is a, a new technology mm-hmm. that was discovered just a few years ago, and it is a defense. It's originally a defense mechanism for bacteria that they could sort of shoot out uh, very precisely uh, one nucleotide in a viral DNA, mm-hmm. and now it's being used to, with the same type of precision edit genes very, very cheaply, very, very quickly. It's an absolute revolution. Um, A a similar revolution is going on with material science. Mm -hmm. Absolutely incredible things where we're creating these materials genomes. um, And instead of the traditional process of trial and error, they, uh, what they're doing is using machine learning and big data to predict uh, patterns of the properties they want. So when you look mm-hmm. at something like Boeing's new Dreamliner, which for the past several decades, designing an aircraft has really been a, an exercise in trade-offs. You have a bigger airplane with larger engines. It can go faster, hold more people. You have a smaller airplane. It can't hold as many people, but it's... Uh, doesn't go as fast, but it's much more efficient. But what what Boeing has been able to do is instead of only redesigning the air, airplane, they've been able to redesign the materials that go in it. So they have were able to make an airplane of a similar size, but that's 20% more efficient. Hmm. And now with what's going on in material science, what we're going to see over the next 5, 10 years 
is that ability come down to small and medium-sized companies? So absolutely different world than mm -hmm. whole new possibilities for those small and medium-sized uh, manufacturers to get to make better products, not by redesigning the process or the the product, but actually redesigning the materials in them. Yeah. Well, you know, you, you touch upon a couple times in your book, and I keep bringing it up because it's it's my other world, and that is the medical side. I was at a oncology conference about a year ago, and um, one of the on oncologists giving a lecture. I was giving a lecture later in the day and was just sitting in to listen to who was uh, preceding me. He said, who in the audience here thinks that we're going to cure cancer in the next 10 years? And I raised my hand uh, and I was the only one in the room. And I, like a lot of times, you, you don't realize your cell phone's in your hand. Uh, and I raised my hand with my cell phone. He says, why do you think you're going to cure cancer? And I had my, why, why do you think we're going to be able to cure cancer? And I said, I had my phone up in the air and I just kind of pointed to it. And it was really just saying it's going to be technology that allows us to do things that took so much longer back even when I was in medical school that with the sort of one of the theses in your book, this being able to collaborate, work together, work as teams um, and, and in that innovation portfolio that you talk about, you know, there's one of the things, unfortunately, in my training, we kind of worked like like. Frederick Winslow Taylor's philosophy. There was one way to do it. There was one best way. There was a standard of care and that's the way you did it. And what we're seeing now is that there are many ways to do it. In fact, let's look at how all those ways together with a collaboration, collaborative efforts, we can actually solve a problem. Yeah. One of the most interesting guys I talked to was Jim Allison, who mm -hmm. uh, developed cancer immunotherapy. Yep. yep. And just an incredibly uh, nice and humble guy. Um, but that original, and back to the 30 years rule, that the original discovery that led to that was back in 1987. And, uh, well, I won't go through the details, but uh, one of the interesting things was when he made his discovery that this thing could cure cancer, which was uh, in the mid-90s, he went around for three years and none of the pharmaceutical companies wanted to invest in it. And the interesting <laughs> thing was, um, it wasn't because it wasn't because they didn't understand the idea. It's because they had invested in hundreds of trials of mm -hmm. immune approaches to, to cancer and none of them had worked. Um, but he eventually pushed it through and he's, obviously been responsible for saving tens of thousands of lives. But when his original cure, it only, it only, uh, it only cured about 30% of the people, uh, mm -hmm. he treated. Now these were terminally ill patients who right. were almost all going to die. And the stories are amazing. Uh, one of the first ones to go through clinical, clinical trials was this 20 year, 22 year old woman just heartbreaking. She, she came down with a, a very aggressive case of melanoma mm -hmm. and, and she, they tried everything, radiation, chemo, everything. Um, and she, she only had a few months to live 
and they asked her if she wanted to enter a clinical trial, and she said, sure, you know, what do I have to lose? Mm -hmm. And uh, three, four months later, she was in remission, and now she's, you know, in her mid-30s, and <laughs> she's got two kids, and she's nice. a fitness instructor. Um, but that wasn't the end of it. That was only the beginning with it. Sure. Of it. I mean, that was 13 years ago, and he's still in the lab every day, and they found yeah. another similar drug they can combine it with get the success rates over 50%. And there's still, he's working with people all around the world trying to figure out which types of chemo will it work with, which types of radiation, which types of cancer. I mean, unlimited permutations and still so much work to do. Yeah, so, so in, in the, the 70s, I was an undergraduate student and as I mentioned, I was a microbiology major and I was reading an article, a friend of mine and we were reading the same article about this bacteria, Carini bacteria parvum or C. parvum, that if you were able to get some of the elements in the cell membrane, cell wall, that, um, that it was uh, immunogenic. It would stimulate a part of immunity called complement. So we were kids, we didn't know what we were doing and we would break into the microbiology lab and harvest Carini bacteria parvum, spin it down in the centrifuge, and just like it was, the, the recipe was in the, in the article. And we found a local veterinary doc uh, who identified uh, stray dogs with spontaneous tumors, and we injected the, our, our secret cocktail into these dogs and saw remission of their tumors, some reduction in size of their tumors. So what happened is we got invited to an American Cancer Society meeting, uh, which we presented our work and our data. Keep in mind, this is in the 70s. In the 70s, right. And um, the first thing they did is they said, interesting work for a bunch of nobodies. And then they proceeded to read us the riot act because we didn't have an IRB or any credentials to be doing this research. But someone happened to be in the audience who was interested in uh, med tech and funded the, a company that I wind up not joining. My, uh, my friend wind up doing it in the uh, med tech space. I wind up going to medical school. But you're, what ultimately, what I learned from that, which I didn't realize until much later, and your book actually addresses it, is that we were operating in a vacuum. We read an article that had been written years prior. We had some information. We decided to go into the lab, but we didn't collaborate. Had we collaborated with brighter people than us, more experienced people than us, maybe in different disciplines than us, who knows what would have happened? And that's not the only time that's happened in my life. So I, it, your, your points in your book really, really hit home with me. Well, you know, there's a wonderful book written by this very nice woman who's now dean of the Cal Berkeley School, uh, mm -hmm. uh, the data school at Cal Berkeley. Her name's... Annalise Saxenian, and the book is called Regional Advantage. And the subject of the book is that back in the 1970s, when you were spritzing <laughs> tumors into dogs, um, back in the 1970s, the center of technology was Route 128 outside of Boston. Yeah. Uh, but by the 1990s, that had completely changed. And Silicon Valley ascended, and it's really never looked back. And so she, she's been studying that since the 80s. 
And what's interesting is where all of the Route 128 companies were islands unto themselves. They were vertically integrated. You know, places like Data General and Digital and Wang and Apollo and a bunch of other names that have long since been forgotten. God. Yeah. Um, they were vertically integrated. And if you left the company, you were an outcast. Nobody wanted to talk to you. And they didn't socialize uh, together. Where in Silicon Valley, everybody was connecting all the time. Mm -hmm. That they, they socialized together. If you uh, left to start your own company, your former employer would often be your first customer. Um, they went to each other's lectures. They were all connected into Stanford and Cal Berkeley. Mm -hmm. um, and that made all the difference uh, because the velocity of ideas going around made for a much more innovative environment, number one. Number two, when, they, when the technology industry started to change, all those connections acted as an early warning signal. And Silicon Valley was able to adapt where Boston wasn't. Mm -hmm. But then she wrote a follow-up book called The New Argonauts about a, a second phenomenon which happened when a lot of immigrants went to Silicon Valley because it was always a very open place. Mm -hmm. And then they went back home to Taiwan, to China, to India, and they started to make their own tech hubs. But through their Silicon Valley connections... And then they started to specialize in certain technologies. And, and that really made Silicon Valley even stronger. Mm -hmm. But one of the interesting things she said to me is, uh, she said, you know, no, nobody's really, you know, Silicon Valley happened because of a, a very unusual set of circumstances. But since then, nobody's been able to do it absolutely de novo. Um, mm -hmm. Everybody's really done it through connections to Silicon Valley. And when you look when around all the places that say, oh, we're going to create a tech hub, we're going to create an innovation hub, we're going to create the next Silicon Valley. And then they have some ribbon cutting of some technology park or accelerator or some other thing. But one thing they never talk, the, the one element they always leave out is Silicon Valley. You can't start a new Silicon Valley without Silicon Valley. Uh, and, and those are very organic connections. Yeah. And you never, they never say, hey, let's, you know, let's see how we could connect to Silicon Valley. Let's see how we can offer them um, some. Let's see how we can facilitate connections. Let's see how we can widen and deepen connections with other places. No, it's all um, how can we make a new island unto itself. And that's why they always fail. So when, when when I was in when I finally got to you know in the way it works in medicine you do medical school then you do an internship and a, a residency and a fellowship when I was in my fellowship uh, in nuclear medicine after radiology um, we were working on these incredibly powerful Sun Spark workstations I mean they were they had computing power like no other computers at of the time and the reason they were important to what our work is that we were moving large image data files and video files through a network. And this is, this was all pre-internet. Right. And, 
And I was fascinated by that. And of course, being in the medical side and then also on the music side, um, it dawned on me very early on that you can move music files through a network. Now, of course, this was years before the iPod. And, and again, this is, I, I think it, it, it addresses something in your book, and that is we were so much an island unconnected to the rest of the world that had we had, there, was, uh, there wasn't much of a Silicon Valley back then, but um, had we had some connectivity, I actually went out and reached out to, uh, you. I don't know if you ever, have you ever met um, Jeff Hawkins, the guy who invented the Palm Pilot? I've never met him, but Fasc- he is an yeah, incredible, incredible person. Fascinating guy. I, I reached out to Jeff and I said, Jeff, at the time he had sold his, his Palm company to U.S. Robotics, um, started his new company called Handspring, uh, and was creating a Trio phone or a Visor phone. I can't remember the name of it. And I said, Jeff, why don't we, instead of having golf modules or you know uh, spreadsheet modules in the back of these smartphones, why don't we put music modules? And he said, well, that's a fascinating idea. And I, of course, we didn't know what an iPod was. And, and so I said, it would be kind of like a phone Walkman. <laughs> and he said, well, that, that's a cool idea, but what would you do for headphones? And I said, well, hold on a second. I, uh, friends of mine own a, a headphone company. That, that, I don't know if you ever heard of them, Koss, K-O-S-S. Yeah, sure. So I reached out to, to John Koss, and I said, John, we're doing this new project, and it's going to involve like a Walkman phone. We need headphones. And he goes, oh, we have tons of headphones. I go, no, no, I don't, I don't want those big ones. I want, like, you remember back when we were kids, the transistor radios with the monorail one ear, mm-hmm. little spaghetti wire in your ear? He goes, oh, you want two of those? Yeah, we want two of those. Of course, we didn't know what earbuds were. Mm-hmm. So, so you know, we, we started this company. We called it Indigo Music. It stood for Interactive Digital Go Music. At the same time, I was starting a record label at Polygram Records. And we were going to use the content from that record label to put on these devices on Jeff Hawkins' phones. And, you know, we, we put this whole thing together and we had a tech company that I, I worked with and actually became one of the founding partners in. And one of the other partners was, was the uh, founder of Outback Steakhouse. So he was the money guy. Uh, we, were, we were trying to figure out how to create what, of course, we didn't know what it was, sort of like an iTunes. So there'd be a database of music. And I get a call one day from this guy in, uh, in Texas. And he said, look, we're starting this new company. And... Um, we do mostly sports radio on the internet. So wherever you are in the world, you can watch, listen to your favorite sports radio station. Of course, it sounded, wow, in the early 90s, that was phenomenal. So we went out to meet with this guy uh, at a, in San Francisco at a tech conference. And the guys from the tech company that were kind of, kind of moving the technology forward said, ah, we don't want to work with this guy. We, we, don't, we don't really think he's got the goods. The guy was Mark Cuban. and not only did i get pushed back there but polygram didn't was not interested in any form of digital music at the time because they felt it would compete with the products they were trying to sell so it's a perfect you you mentioned this in your book you know the, the stars also have to be aligned i mean there's lots of people working on lots of things that have great ideas, but an idea is not a business. And unless those stars are aligned, it may never happen, which in my case didn't. 
Yeah, that's why, like Steve Blank says, it's so important to get out of the building. And yeah. one of the most interesting things about Steve Blank's work and the Lean Launchpad um, is now they started. Uh, they it started as a pro. Uh, it's called Icor. It started as a pilot project in uh, in the NSF, the National Science Foundation, because mm -hmm. they have all these scientists who come up with these amazing things, and commercialization is is obviously always a concern. You know, how can we get these these incredible discoveries commercialized? Mm -hmm. um, so they started sending some of the guys to Steve Blank's course for the summer. Um, mm -hmm. And it's just been tremendously successful. Um, and this past year, Congress actually passed a law that all of the science programs in the U.S. government need to have, need to implement this program. Wow. So um, when I said uh, it won't help you cure cancer, uh, I stand by that. But if you have if you have a cancer cure, it'll, it'll help you start a business. That's right. <laughs> well, you know, you know, the the other thing that I could tell you related to, to medicine is that um, when I was uh, I I was applying to med school as a pre-med student at the University of Florida and uh, I applied. I didn't get in the first year. I, I was the big failure. Um, and so I decided, you know, I'm going to go work in a lab. And I um, there was a nutty professor who was a nephrologist and an exercise physiologist who had this idea he'd make a drink that would make athletes feel better. And we would run around the University of Florida campus. We were wearing plastic gloves. We'd collect sweat in the gloves and then analyze the electrolytes in the sweat. And that became the formula for the drink. For, for Gatorade. For, of course, it was the University of Florida. It was the Gators. Yeah, yeah. And, and Dr. Cade was truly an innovator. But at a time where it was much harder to innovate. And I'm fascinated today when I, I remember I had some students come through one of my imaging centers um, and they were medical students. And I was talking to them about the difference of being a student today when you have a smartphone and you can look up anything on the fly as opposed to, you know, I wasn't necessarily in the dark ages, but when I wanted if we were making rounds on patients and we had a patient with a disorder that I didn't know anything about, I'd have to run to the library and go find a reference on it. It would take an incredible amount of time. And now it's at your fingertips. So that's where kind of what I was saying before with the cell phone in my hand, when I raised my hand at that oncology meeting, I think that's moving things along so fast that it's actually, it's a wonderful time to be an innovator. Yeah, one of the interesting things now, um, there's been sort of a Harvard Business Review trend for high-powered consultants to complain about meetings mm -hmm. um, and saying, well, you don't have much, nobody has any time for quiet work anymore. Um, and I've been sort of fighting a rear guard action against it because, of course, meetings are the work today. I mean, the work of humans has been become uh, to collaborate with other humans to design work for machines. You know, mm -hmm. you, of course, uh, 
20 years ago, you needed to spend a lot more time in your office to, in order to crunch data or do a lot of things that, you know, your smartphone can do right now in, in a few seconds. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the average teenager today has more access to information on a, on a smartphone than an engineer at a major corporation 20 years ago. Uh, so that's, that's really changed the nature of work where, uh, you know, the old types of things we used to value, manipulate numbers in your head and to retain knowledge have been very much devalued. And so much of the value today is not what's between your ears, but what happens between people. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, at, at, at the end of your book, you had two messages that I think were really important, and I encourage people to read it to understand these messages. One was in your discussion of economist Robert Gordon's very grim view of the future, um, where you kind of touched on that, you know, technology creates problems, but the technology may also solve those problems. And then the other was, you know, you cited Fortune editor Jeff Colvin's book, uh, Humans Are Underrated, uh, when he, he says that, and you say as well, that the most critical 21st century skill is empathy. And I think that's a really great way to end the book because there's a, there's a human side uh, to all this kind of tech and business and, and, and all the, the, the things that we tend to focus on today and the business side. Um, but as a society, we we got we have to invest long term rather than these so-called quarterly earnings and get back to basics. Um, you know, you, you talked about, for instance, uh, not only at the level of the NSF or the NIH, but all, also in early education years. I think our education system could be better in promoting empathy. Yeah, uh, I mean, kids need to learn different skills. Um, in in our school system, there's been sort of an uprising uh, about recess mm-hmm. uh, because they keep making it shorter for all these uh, different co- academic requirements. But, you know, for an elementary school, recess is the most educational experience that they get. Everything else they can learn on tablets. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, y- you sparked a couple of thoughts and now I forget them and now I feel very <laughs> silly. Um, but yeah, well, I, I, I do think, you know, I think as a society and one of the things that uh, another meme going out through society is, uh, this idea of quarterly capitalism and stock buybacks when the fact is that business investment in capital and R&D has been on an upward trend for years. And while people say rightly that we no longer have Xerox PARC and we no longer have Bell Labs, and that's true, um, but Xerox PARC was only 10 years anyway. Um, Bell Labs had a very, very good run, but you still have massive long-term research efforts and, and, and basic research efforts at companies like GE Procter and Gamble, IBM, and you have new labs at places like uh, Microsoft, 
which is not exactly new. It's 25 years old. But also you see Google and Facebook. So it's not the business sector that is unable to think long term. Uh, actually, as a whole, businesses seem to be able to do that quite well and seem to be doing it better better than they did in previous generations. Mm -hmm. Where we're falling down is on our collective effort in two areas. First, the public funding of science, which um, if you look at an iPhone, there is not a significant component within an iPhone or, or pretty much any other technology that didn't benefit from or wasn't wholly invented in some government program. And you can go in any field. Um, mm -hmm. In pharmaceuticals, most of the blockbuster drugs, the research started with an NIH grant. Mm -hmm. Google as a company started as a National Science Foundation grant. So um, that our commitment to that as a society has been steadily falling for over 30 years. And now, of course, you've got members of Cong Congress calling in scientists to question their grants. And it's, it's really terrible what's happening. Mm -hmm. But the other, the other place we're falling down is the realization that human potential is our greatest asset. And if there's some kid who's not getting the right nutrition, not getting health care, not getting the right parental supervision because both of his parents work at Walmart and don't get any leave, um, or because he lives in Appalachia or some other area, uh, we all lose because mm -hmm. that child is, is going to be less likely to become a productive member of society and more likely to be a burden on society. So we really need to understand that that is, um, that should be our number one national priority. Mm -hmm. How do we maximize the potential of everybody in the society because that's the only way we can maximize our security, our prosperity, and our capacity for justice. Well, I agree. And, and you know, I, my uh, grade school kid came home one day with a project, and it was if you were to run for president, what's the one thing you would change, president of the United States, what's the one thing you would change to make the world better? And together, she and I came up with the idea of let's pay teachers more. Let's let's raise the bar. So if you want to be a teacher, you'll you'll make a decent amount, but you have to teach tolerance. You have to teach some of the things that are you just talked about that are no longer emphasized in the schools. And the problem is, it's it's that quarterly, four year, whatever problem where it can't get solved in a short period of time. So it gets backburnered. Well, also, we, you know, as parents, um, we need to treat teachers as partners. I mean, yeah, you course. have you have this person who's paid to help your child reach their potential. Mm -hmm. That's not a servant. That's a partner. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, parents need to take it upon themselves to help teachers do their jobs. You can't just say, OK, I'm going to outsource the raising of my child because <laughs> it's in somebody's job description. Yeah. 
All right. So before before we depart, uh, let's talk about music. The interesting thing about collaboration that I thought about a lot when I was reading your book is the concept of open source music production. Uh, I don't know if you're a Steely Dan fan, but the way that Donald Fagan and Walter Becker used to make these records is they used to bring in the best musicians from around the world to play on compositions that they composed. And might an open source be the future of our music business? Because the music that we listen to now on the radio, I don't listen to it, but what's on the radio, it's actually created by a team. Um, it's, there's, there's one brilliant producer, the guy's name is Max Martin. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but he, all the big pop hits today are arranged, created, sometimes co-composed by this one guy. And that's why you hear a lot of the music today on the radio sounds the same. And they all use auto-tunes so their voices sound perfect. But might collaboration using an open source way to make music be the future in the evolution of the music business? Yeah, I think that um, if you look at if you look at it from a network perspective, um, in terms of network theory, uh, it's really important to keep the nodes open uh, and not close the nodes in so that you allow other things to connect. And if you look at any great leap of cre creativity, whether it's in music or Picasso's African period or whatever it is, it's almost always the result of some new connection being made. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really important. Well, that's great. Well, Greg, this has been enlightening. Uh, really enjoy your book, Mapping Innovation, a playbook for navigating a disruptive age. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. All right. You take care. Okay. All right, bye-bye.